Great. Good evening. I'm Broman Maddox. I'm director of the Institute for Government, and I'm delighted to have here Paul Collier launching his new book, The Future of Capitalism, and then a very small uh, subtitle, Facing the New Anxieties, which he's going to talk to us about. Paul, as many of you will know, is Professor of Economics and Public Policy at the Oxford School of uh, Oxford Blavatnik School of Government, and is author of many books. Uh, but um, pick out among recent ones the bottom billion, about the bottom billion of the world's population and why they were staying this way. I'm going to read you simply one thing from the, the book jacket of this, and I wouldn't normally do this, but it is very striking. George Akerlof, who won the Nobel in economics in 2001, said, the future of capitalism, this book, is the most revolutionary work of social science since Keynes. Let's hope it will also be the most influential. These times are in desperate need of Paul Collier's insight. Paul, thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Um, we're, going to, we're going to talk for about um, 20, 25 minutes, um, but I know there are going to be a lot of questions, and I want to leave enough time for that. Paul, um, you've, you've talked about this book quite um, a lot, but let me just start with asking you, really one of the basic points of your argument. You described a lot of rifts uh, that exist, in your view, in, in Britain. Do, do, do you take us through what those are? Yeah, I think there are sort of two big rifts that have opened up since around 1980. And, uh, and one is spatial. Um, and it's, uh, it's the spatial divide between a booming metropolis and broken towns and cities. And that's by no means unique to Britain. It's a common pattern pretty well around the Western world, booming metropolis, broken cities. And there are a couple of simple economic forces that give rise to that. Um, the, the second rift um, is the new class divide, um, which is so not just economic, it's also cultural, but, it, but in origin it's, uh, it's economic. And that is between the, 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 the people who've got uh, tertiary education, college education, as it were, um, and the people who took the non-cognitive route. And the, the people with... Well, which is a strange term, but you mean by that something like technical manual, education? Manual skills. Yeah. yeah, manual skills. So the... The, 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 the highly educated in cities, in, in the metrop metropolis, are on an up escalator um, in which um, their, their skill is becoming more and more valuable. And the, the, the agglomeration, the metropolis, makes that happen, as does the rising complexity. Um, and meanwhile, the, the people with the manual skills... Um, are on a down escalator because their, their skills are becoming, in market terms, less and less valuable. And so that's become uh, a big cultural divide. It started as an economic divide. The same is true of the uh, spatial divide, that we're now witnessing, of course, a cultural divide between um, the provinces and the metropolis. Um, I, I love the phrase of... Janan Ganesh, uh, who is the perfect, the quintessential skilled metropolitan in describing how um, London looks out at the, uh, at the provinces. And he says it feels like being shackled to a corpse. Um, not a whole lot of 
human compassion in that phrase, but shackled to a corpse. And, and I, my response to, to, to Janan, who's a very clever commentator, is to give him the perspective from the provinces, the perspective of London. And I think it feels like being shackled to a shark. Um, uh, and so this has become the sort of cultural divide as well as the economic divide. So those are the deep rifts. Right. So those are the deep rifts. I, I, was, I was pausing for a moment, wondering if I were going to quibble about taking Janan's comment, as he does describe in his FT comments, uh, his own journey, if you like, in the modern phrase, um, uh, from different... Let's leave that one. Where did these rifts come from, in your view? Because you're not saying that this has gone on forever, and you're not saying that capitalism has been broken forever. You're saying, and we're talking really about Britain at the moment, you know, that they, yeah. this is yeah. fairly recent. It's, yeah, it's in I'd the past few decades. It's, it's been sort of roughly post-1980. Until then, if we look at the spatial divide, around the Western world, spatial divides were, were, were narrowing. Britain had very, very narrow spatial divides, actually. The, the, re the regional difference in income were really quite small. Um, and um, uh, the same in America. You'd had basically 200 years of regional convergence. Um, uh, the, um, when I uh, was at school in the 1960s, in a, you know, a, a good state grammar school, getting all these cognitive skills, I looked around me and thought, oh, they, don't, they barely seem worth having because all the big monies with the manual skills. You know, the steel workers were, were doing very well. Um, so even, so the, the, the skill divide is recent. What, what's driving it is, is pretty straightforward. It's, it's the interaction of um, globalization mm -hmm. and, um, and the quest for greater productivity, which is a, a natural quest, but the, the price of greater productivity is mastering greater complexity. And to master greater complexity, you need more and more specialist knowledge, specialist skills. And so we've seen a, a differentiation in skills. And what the agglomerate, that, that then interplays with the globalization effect, because you want to bring people together with a lot of skill, a lot of different skills, so that they can work together. And you need to bring them together in bigger and bigger clusters. And that's the the, the metropolitan... Driving people towards yeah, the cities. Yeah, yeah. Yes. And so um, London, having gone through you know, several decades of actually losing population, has then reversed and gone through several decades of, of gaining population. And that's, a, that's very common. New York went through the same sort of thing. Um, so we're in a phase... Uh, where the interaction of globalization and rising complexity really gives a premium, a market put solution to these big agglomerations. Mm. Um, and, and just to pick on the, the point I was touching on, I mean, your, your view, you, you've called this book the future of capitalism, and you do think there is a future? Absolutely. I mean, uh, uh, capitalism is the only system we know that is capable of delivering rising mass prosperity. Um, and, uh, but it doesn't work on autopilot. If you leave it on autopilot, every now and then it derails, sometimes spectacularly. You know, it derailed in the 1840s. First, use, you know, the factories, what Adam Smith noticed, you bring people together 
scale and specialization, and they become hugely more productive. So the peasants surged into the towns and cities and became more productive. Their incomes went up. But the, these new cities became killing fields. I mean, literally killing fields. Life expectancy for a rural laborer in the first half of the 19th century was about 33. Not very good. Mm. In the cities, it fell to 19. Yeah. These were the slaughterhouses because you herded people together, so you got contagion of disease, you got contaminated water supplies because there wasn't the public infrastructure. Um, and in fact, let me give you one little snippet because I think the 1840s was sort of an extraordinary period on both the left and the right. Because on the right, in the business community, businessmen were horrified by what they saw. So give, give an example of Titus Salt, who was a, an innovator, an entrepreneur, uh, made a fortune. Bradford was where he was. It was the most booming city in Europe. So loads of migration from across Europe. That's where my grandfather went. Um, and, um, and he became mayor. He was mayor in 1849, and cholera struck. So he, there was no solution to cholera at the time. Nobody knew what caused it. So there he was, his, his own workers were dying, the people of his city were dying, he was responsible. And what he did in response to that was he gave his fortune away. He built Saltaire, the first town for, with decent accommodation for workers, decent conditions, then got copied later by Cadbury, Lever, Lever Brothers, modern incarnation is, uh, is John Lewis. Um, so that was what was happening on the right. And meanwhile, in the same cities, yeah. in the same time, on the left, what happened, ordinary people were facing these new anxieties. You know, the subtitle of the no, book is the new yeah. anxiety. They were facing practically real new anxieties. Um, you know, where do I live? And the new, if you're dying at 19, a new anxiety is, will I get a proper burial? And so they forged pragmatic solutions, just like salt. And their pragmatic solutions were the cooperative movement, which was, of course, born in the northern English cities in the 1840s. Uh, and what the, what the cooperative movement was, was building reciprocal obligations, just like salt ended up building reciprocal obligations, his duty to his workers, and his workers responded by recognizing their loyalty to him. There's a big statue of him in Bradford. Thousands of people turned out for his funeral when he died. There was mutual loyalty, reciprocal obligations recognized. Um, the same in the cooperative movement. You know? Halifax Building Society, biggest bank in Britain until the city got hold of it, um, solving the problem of where do you live. Um, the Cooperative Funeral Society became the biggest funeral director in Britain. Can you be buried with a decent burial? And so these were pragmatic solutions mm. to the problem, the anxieties of the time. Mm. But as you describe in the book, I mean, the cooperative movement came very much out of the particular circumstances of, of that time and the enormous sense of solidarity and community and national identity after the Second World War and, and, and so on. Um, but some of your reviewers, not all, the reviews have been pretty dazzling, I must say, but some of them have, have uh, taken issue saying, look, uh, uh, you're being nostalgic for this era, um, um, you know, really some decades ago, and that was of its time, and those lessons don't transplant to now. I think the, the concept of reciprocal obligations, mm. um, which uh, Mr. Lawson 
wrongly think so I'm just sort of nostalgic trying to return to so not this Dorman, Dominic Lawson, time. to be 100% clear, yeah. and, uh, given that there are um, others in public life. Yeah. Um, you know, it seems to think that I just want to go back to the period 1945 I don't want to go back. Um, I am a pragmatist. He doesn't, un- do. yeah. Yeah, okay. he doesn't understand what pragmatism is. Pragmatism is contrasted with ideology of utopia. And just as the, the, you know, the, the Thatcherite right has a utopian notion of markets work, mm. and it has a, a guidebook, which is Milton Friedman, and that's how we get to utopia. It's a permanent state mm. with permanent rulebook. Pragmatists think there is no permanent utopia, there's no permanent rulebook. We're in a continuous state of flux, and so we get pragmatic solutions that work for a phase. The pragmatic solutions to unemployment of the 30s were Keynesianism, which worked 1945 to 70, and then it, it started to go wrong. And we needed another vintage of pragmatic solutions. We didn't get them. What we got instead was ideology. So I am not nostalgic for going back, but that principle of reciprocal obligations was not unique to 1945 to 70. It began in the 1840s, and then it goes from local, which is where all politics starts. Post-1945, it went national. In effect, the cooperative movement captured the nation um, and uh, produced some wonderful outcomes of reciprocal obligation certainly transformed the opportunities for me. My, my, my parents both left school when they were 12. Thanks to that period, I got, you know, I was born in a National Health Service hospital two years after being founded. I went to a school, paid through right through to my doctorate. Um, you, know. you make the point in this book about the parallel experience of your cousin. Was Absolutely. Born, born on the same day. She, Absolutely. She I can't resist it. There's yeah, a pic- there's a, there's, there's a picture I'm very um, pleased that Penguin actually put in Um, you won't quite see it but it's two little kids Um, and uh, myself and my cousin um, aged aged four and we were born on the same day to exactly the same social class Um, and uh, until the age of 14 our lives were, were parallel we both got to grammar schools in the city um, and then it was 1963, and those of you who know Philip Larkin know what happened in 1963. Eh? Sexual intercourse began in 1963, according to his poem. And as he says, it was just too late for him. Well, it was too early for me, um, but not for my cousin. Um, um, and so, uh, indeed, uh, sexual intercourse did begin for her, and it did for her. She became a teenage mother. Her two daughters became teenage mothers. Um, And so that's the sort of extreme social divergence that I've lived through um, with my family in this now broken city of Sheffield. Many of you will know about Sheffield. You just don't realize it. You'll have watched the film, The the Full Monty, and that's Sheffield, you know. the min- anyway, we, we don't yeah. need to diverge on that, but many people... No, 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 I don't mean all that. The anecdote, which is endlessly interesting, though many might take it as uh, different experiences of men and women 
uh, if contraception isn't available. And that is also true, isn't it? That yeah. I was fortunate with my gender, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but these are, to my mind, avoidable derailments. Mm. Um, and when we get to talk about the solutions in the yes, book, we'll, which we we'll are in, this time. in just yeah. a second. Yeah. But I wanted to pick up a phrase you've used in the book. I mean, the mutiny of, did you say that the, the, the regions or the provinces? And you talk about mutiny and you talk uh, almost on the first page about, about revolution and the strength yeah. of feeling about what is going on. Yes, I think that's the, the, the sort of... Because these anxieties of the, the provincial manual workers on the down escalator, um, seeing this booming metropolis with a very arrogant narrative developing in it, they see themselves as neglected, as marginalized, as not fitting into any of the elite narratives of the groups that deserve um, to be classified as victims. Um, and so they develop uh, genuine anxieties about the future. If you look at the survey evidence of what ordinary people think of the future in the provinces, they're really very worried. Mm. Um, and, um, and, they, and, they, and yet those anxieties have been unaddressed for 40 years. And so um, what do people do when they've got real fears that are mm. left to linger? They mutiny. And the mutinies we've seen all around Europe and America. It, it's, it's Trump, it's Brexit, um, it's the AFD. And um, as with all mutinies, they're not about achieving a utopia. Huh? They're just not about that. They're expressions of frustrated anger at neglect. Um, you know, let's take the most famous mutiny of all, the mutiny on the bounty. Um, where did those mutineers end up? They ended up in Pitcairn, an island in the middle of nowhere. Right? Um, they didn't aim to end up in Pitcairn. They mutinied because they were so angry at the conditions on the bounty. Right? Um, so it was a complete misdiagnosis of, uh, of these mutinies as if they are really trying to achieve some end goal. They're not. They're the result of neglect by the metropolitan skill. Ne neglect tinged with contempt. That contempt that is in there in that phrase, shackled to a I, I'm going to come on in a second to, to, to your remedies for this, but I mean, mutiny is against a leader. And you, you're saying both right and left have failed on this. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. The, the right got into, both right and left got captured and diverted from the pragmatic solutions to genuine anxieties, which, as I say, you go to the business community and you go to the cooperative movement from the 1840s onwards. Um, they'd been basically trying to address genuine anxieties in a pragmatic way using these sort of reciprocal obligations. And instead, the right gets diverted into one ideology, which is worship of the market. Greed is good. Mm. Um, and the left gets high, diverted into an, another pair of, of, of crazy ideologies. Um, the economists sell it the idea of utilitarian paternalism, um, and the lawyers sell it Rawlsian uh, group victims, you know. Um, and, um, and so the, the, both the political parties get captured by these um, 
pretty wacky ideologies, really, mm. and diverted from attention on pragmatic solutions to real anxieties. Mm. All right, so let's come on to the, uh, the solutions that you're offering, which have attracted, and I, I can tell you as someone who owns a lot of these books here, many do not get as far as offering s- solutions to the problems they eloquently describe. Uh, Paul does have, and, and, and then uh, that's been the subject of a lot of um, uh, discussion between you and your, your reviewers and so on. Um, t- tell us about the solutions you propose. Well, I'll, uh, I'll, pick, um, I'll, pick, I'll, pick, I'll pick three for the right. moment, right? So one, which is a really a no-brainer, uh, is, is about what we do with the half of the population that doesn't take the cognitive skills route. Right? So I think we've actually over-expanded um, university education because in Britain there's so much esteem attached to the cognitive route and so little esteem attached to anything else mm. that everybody wants to crowd in to getting a degree, quite excessive. Um, And that's where we put our resources. We've got three of the top 10 universities in the world, which is a phenomenal achievement. And that's all about cognitive skills. Meanwhile, if you look at the evidence on investment in training, which is for the other half of the population, which is basically the non-cognitive route, still skills, right? Those steel workers in Sheffield were highly skilled. There's lots of skills that don't depend primarily on cognitive ability. If you look at the, the investment in training in Britain, it's gone down and down and down, decade by decade. And so we've completely neglected that. Now, it doesn't have to be like that. Huh? Um, if we look at uh, elsewhere in the world, um, the, the, the role model here, I think, is Switzerland. Uh, which gets it uh, brilliantly right. 60% of Swiss choose to take the non-cognitive route, even though Switzerland also has a top 10 university in the world. And what is the non-cognitive route? It's as prestigious as the cognitive route. There are chief executives of the Swiss banks who took the non-cognitive route Mm. perfectly successfully. And what is it? It's four years leading to highly respected qualifications, four years which are very serious um, and done properly. They're done properly because they're very expensive and half the costs are paid by firms. And so firms make damn sure that if they're paying, you come out with a skill that makes you employable. So that's the model. We're not doing it. We're doing the opposite. We've moved away over the last 40 years from the rather modest levels of training we had, which was through the apprenticeship system. So instead of building the non-cognitive skill route, we've destroyed it. Mm. Well, I, I, so I'm not going to pick up your phrase of, of cognitive, which I, I, I'm, okay. I'm not warming to. Sorry. It, to me, it yeah. slightly impl- implies that the, uh, the t- more technical routes uh, don't have cognitive skills. But, but that is, this, this one seems to be not wildly controversial. No, exactly. Um, I wanted to start many with Many governments that. of many stripes have come here, and the institutes published papers on, on how uh, every government comes in with a paper about what to do about further education, and, and then, uh, and then the fact is that they, and then they don't do it, and, yeah. and you know, yeah. there's almost one every yeah. two years, uh, which we have many colourful charts on. But you have others that are much yeah. more controversial. So we'll move both directions from the, the post-16s, right? Right. If we move earlier... Um, then we get to um, the, the, de- the move, what I call social 
maternalism. Right? And what, what, we've ha- what we've got, this is in the passage from birth to 16, what we've got is um, a, uh, a frightful form of social paternalism, top-down, um, tick-box authoritarianism, in which um, social services workers have been denuded of, um, uh, of, of, of autonomous judgment, of discretion, and they follow these sort of tick-box rules, which is designed so that the, the director of the social services mm-hmm. cannot be sued when a decision goes wrong, because we can point to a decision procedure which has been followed. Um, and so right from birth onwards, um, we get uh, a very high rate, a disturbingly high rate, an avoidably high rate of derailment. Um, the, the, in, the schooling, too much is hope is pinned on, the, on schools rather than preschool and out of school. But as Robert Putnam in his brilliant book, Our Kids, has shown, what schools really do is amplify divergences due to the home. Because schools are first and foremost sites where kids interact rather than being places where they're taught. And in Britain, the sites where kids interact are determined by catchment areas and house prices. And so the middle classes buy uh, interaction with, with, like-minded, with, you know, with sort of the kids of like-minded parents. And so that amplifies these divergences. So social maternalism would really strengthen families. And this is wildly politically incorrect, incorrect because um, the, 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 the myth is out there the politically correct myth that all forms of, um, uh, of uh, sort of household organization are equally valid. Right? They're not equally valid if you look at the, the major function of a household, which is rearing kids. There is just overwhelming scientific evidence that the best people to rear children are their parents. But the process of rearing them is hugely stressful especially if you're in your teens, if you don't have much of a job, and so on. And so there's enormous need for support. That's the time when we need big support, not the attempt to force people into work, but just support. Um, Stuff like they do in France, where everybody goes to Ecole Maternelle. It's free, it's nationally organized, it's dead simple, it's very good. My own kid went to it. and here we've got an itsy-bitsy, privately run, subsidy, the here, subsidy. It's, it's complex, and the very people who most need to go are missed. If you, if you have differentiation and complexity, you miss the people who need it most. Mm. I mean, the interesting point you're making in the book, I mean, that it actually takes, you, you, uh, society order make more support, gives more support uh, to people go, going, going into that route. I want to leave enough time for questions here, and I suspect there are going to be quite a few. Yeah. So I want to ask you about two of the other remedies that you're suggesting. Yeah. One on immigration, and the other on trying to capture or tax some of the extra benefit that people get from, say, working in London. Yeah, I, I, to be honest, Bronwyn, I'd like to, I'd like to, 
pass on immigration because the book fine. mentions fine. immigration in about one page. That's fine. And if yep. we talk about it, nobody will talk about anything else, right? Um, the, let me substitute that with broken cities. Okay. And the, and the juxtaposition of broken cities and booming agglomeration. And um, both of these phenomena need uh, active public policy. The broken cities um, can be revived. There are, not to restore steelmaking to Sheffield, it's not a matter of trying to resist uh, those market forces, but um, market forces do not bring new knowledge-intensive clusters to the places that need them most, the broken cities. Um, market forces just don't do that, just as they don't work with training. We know perfectly well market forces will not train. It'll just leave firms to poach. And the same with the forces that bring knowledge clusters together. The default option, if you leave it to the market, is everything will go to the metropolis. The knowledge-intensive stuff will go to the metropolis because nobody wants to be first in a, in a back-of-beyond place. And so you need an active public policy to coordinate firms to come to a particular place. Um, Ireland pioneered this for a long time. You actively hunt the firms you want and you make, it, you, you, you make things work for them. So investment authorities, which, 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 uh, uh, which Ireland pioneered. You build industrial zones suited with infrastructure suited for particular things, which East Asia pioneered. For example, um, northern Malaysia, which used to be desperately poor, now has one of the finest clusters of electronics on Earth. Right? Mm. Um, there are um, Bilbao in Europe was revived. Mm. What was the narrative for Bilbao, if we go back 25 years? Uh, desperate industrial decline uh, uh, capped by Basque violence. Uh, what's the narrative now? It's, uh, you know, it's, it's, the pl it's a place to go. What changed that narrative? A piece of public infrastructure, which actually had nothing to do with productivity directly. It was the Guggenheim. But that supported a narrative that this place is on the up. Yeah? So there's a lot of public actions that can be done. Um, Brit as I mentioned, Britain has a very good universities in a lot of different places. Mm. Um, America has specialised in linking research in universities through venture capital to um, a lot of new enterprise. Mm. Britain's got the universities, it's got the venture capital, but it hasn't done very well at linking them because all the venture capital sits in London and the places that have these universities uh, are, are elsewhere. So we can... But reviving broken cities will take big money. Where do we get it? This is the bit the audience will really hate. Um, you tax the metropolis because all your skilled metropolitans think you earn your high income, um, and I, you don't. Um, you earn some of it, um, but much of the reason for your high productivity, and hence your high income, is because everything is clustered together in London. And it's clustered together in London thanks to a load of both physical infrastructure and more subtle public infrastructure like the rule of law which has been national achievements over a long time. And the nation as a whole um, should be benefiting from that. So in technical economics terms, these are called the rents of agglomeration. They're huge, 
Um, we used to think that the rents of agglomeration only accrued to landowners, and at one time they more or less did. So the first billionaire in Britain was the Duke of Westminster, who didn't lift a finger to do it. Um, but what um, my colleague Tony Venables and I have shown is that actually once you introduce skills into that sort of model, which of course you've got to do, um, a lot of the rents of agglomeration accrue to the skilled, not to the landowners. Um, and so you've got to tax not only the landowners, you've got to tax the skilled. One uh, argument against it is not just the obvious one that London pays quite a bit for the rest of the country, but uh, but also that things are changing. That, I mean, you're, you're, you're very much focused in this conversation on London, but Birmingham, Manchester, Cardiff, uh, an awful lot of development at the moment uh, might feel rather aggrieved by that characterisation, nor are they without the rule of law. Um, the, it's, sorry, it's the interaction of the no. rule of law with things like the law courts are here, the whole financial sector, believe it or not, mm. needs the rule of law, although it doesn't sometimes look like it. Um, the, um, you don't want to kill the goose, but you know, the metropolitan productivity, which is very much higher, and if you look at the statistics on the shift in the balance of the economy between mm. the provinces and London, it's been an inexorable and quite rapid rise that mm. London is the, is, is the, is the it gets a higher and higher share of national income. Right? So, um, yes, there are other places, mm. and, and there need to be other places. There need to be many more other places. Mm. Uh, it's not a forlorn activity, but um, London is reaping these huge rents of agglomeration and properly taxed. It's, it's not just the new oil... It's the oil field that never runs out. Of course, if you overtax, you kill the goose, and then it becomes uh, a depleting oil field. But um, we don't need. We should be cautious, so not overtax, but um, but we should tax both the, both the, the land and the property and the and the skills. On that note, let's have some questions. Um, there we go. Sorry, there were a couple of hands. Right, uh, let's start here on the front. The, um, Would you like to say who you are? Oh, sorry, Norman Strauss, the next policy wonker. I, I'm intrigued by your use of the phrase pragmatism, and yet the interventions that, that you wish pragmatism to lead to seem to me to agglomerate of governments. Seem to? Have come together as a new form of governance, and yet you've criticised governance by saying that the two ideologies that play ping-pong in winning to govern the country are defunct because they are narrow and non-systemic. I don't see the um, tension that you imply that um, we desperately need uh, public policy, active public policy in alliance with, um, with, with business activity. And um, so we need uh, government to do things. Um, the tragedy is that um, neither of our big political parties actually currently have that agenda. Um, if I parody, the, the, the Conservatives believe in a nation without state and uh, Labour believes in state without nation. And, uh, and Silicon Valley, um, which is indeed really silly, um, believes in uh, things like Bitcoin, which are neither state nor nation. Um, and what we need is both. 
state and nation. So I don't see the tension to which you allude. Do you want to come back on that? Yes, I would like to. Sorry, can we have the microphone back just for a second? If you combine nation and state by, by saying that you're going to tax whole regions of the country in order to empower minorities, then, then in fact you are intervening at the level of policy creation. And you, we've already, you've already said that those who create the policy only come up with limited ideologies that don't cover both nation and state. They warp their, their leverage. But that is, a, that is a recent phenomenon. It's not, a, it's not a characteristic of government. It's not a characteristic of the, the history of our political parties. Um, and uh, we've had a history of very much higher tax obligations which were accepted because there was a sense of reciprocity. And the, the cultural divides we're getting at the moment make it much harder. There I'd agree. It makes it much harder to build a sense of reciprocity because we're lacking, we've eroded this, this great legacy of a sense of of shared identity and shared obligation. Yes, fairness. No, Norma, would you, would you forgive me? No, come, come next door for a glass of wine afterwards. Um, um, uh, Vicky. Uh, Vicky Price, uh, thank you for this. Uh, just uh, as we're talking about the concerns about London, actually population is moving out. Uh, so there, in, in recent, uh, certainly over the past year, we've seen a movement out of London. Uh, mainly because of costs, of course. So, uh, mainly but, but it, because of costs of living in London. But there, there has been a movement out of people in terms of where they live, but also where they want to work. So it seems to be reversed. So there, maybe there's a limit to how much of this uh, urbanisation you can get because of all the negative impacts it has. So yes, you can you can tax them if you like, but actually there are loads of negative externalities in terms of living in 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 a big city as that are present in in London. Uh, the second thing is you talked about. Um, the, the technical skills, we all know, of course, we need them, and Bronwyn is absolutely right that everyone talks about this. But if you look at what's been going on across the, certainly the developed world, and we're seeing some signs of that in the developing too, is that it is the middle skills where people are losing their jobs. Uh, and they're losing those jobs in very large numbers. And where the increases have happened, it has been either in high skills or in low skills. So although it sounds fine and we all want more of those technical skills to happen, uh, I, I, one can still wonder as to whether those skills are going to be in Ibana, whether they're going to be the solution. The final point, on, on uh, uh, the sort of collective obligations or corporate obligations that you think that uh, firms should have, like the old philanthropists in the past. Uh, we have a few of those, of course, still like Bill Gates. But um, what companies are doing at present is they're, they're embarking in something that they're being pushed to do, which is corporate social responsibility. Do you think that's a complete waste of time in this capitalist system? Yeah, okay. So the, the Skills and yeah. corporate social... So the first point was about London sort of going into reverse. I mean, this is very recent, and it's not surprising uh, after the Brexit vote and so on, um, but also, which is sort of throwing away the eggs rather than taxing them. Um, uh, but, uh, but also, your point about negative externalities is completely right, that um, uh, the, the market forces produce excessive agglomeration. And that's another reason why it's more sensible to tax it. Because the tax is actually... It, it, you know, if we, normally, if we tax economic rents, as in economic rents of agglomeration, 
um, the distortionary cost is zero. But in the case of where there's congestion effects, um, the act, you can actually get net benefits from taxing. You can make things more efficient by discouraging um, the, and offsetting these externalities of congestion. So um, you're quite right, but, it's a, but it actually adds to the case for, um, for tax agglomerations. Um, don't wait until you get into this phase where the agglomeration becomes so unlivable that people leave. Um, your, your second point about the gutting of the middle uh, is, is, is also absolutely right. Um, but why is it happening? It's not, I think, driven by deep forces of technology. Uh, it's driven by two um, uh, different professional narratives of how to run a company, uh, both of which are very da damaging. And one comes from economists, one comes from lawyers. So the economists, for the last 40 years, the dominant narrative of how to run a company has been the theory of principal agent, right? which is, in simple language, carrots and sticks. Right? You produce big incentives and you link them to monitored performance. This is the theory which exemplifies bonus culture, and it's what's led um, you know, the ratio of chief executive pay to average earnings in banks to rise from 20 to 1 to 500 to 1. Right? Uh, and that is common across a lot of companies. Nothing like as dramatic in the non-financial sector, but it's still very big in the non-financial sector. Very powerful trend. What we do know from social psychology is that that sort of massive inequality um, kills chances of uh, of a sense of shared, shared identity, which is vital for building reciprocal obligations. So in the process of doing the carrots and sticks, you destroy a sense of uh, reciprocal loyalties. And that wouldn't matter so much for productivity, except that unfortunately, we know now from a lot of experiments that the principal agent approach um, has very, very severe limitations um, because people learn how to game it. They put effort into the few things that are measured and totally ignore the many things that are not. Um, uh, you know, it was the bonus culture that blew up the banks. So um, that's what the economists have done, gutting middle management, because we don't need middle management if everybody's tied to these bonuses and, uh, and, and monitoring. And then the lawyers came along and said what you need is to write more complete contracts. Deeper regulation or specific regulation, fuller contracts. And we see this in the immense growth in the length of contracts over the last 40 years for the same activity, immensely more detail. And what does that do? Um, it reduces the degree of discretion in jobs. That's what it's supposed to do. In the process, it destroys autonomy. You don't have discretion, you don't have autonomy. And if you don't have autonomy, you can't um, uh, buy into reciprocal obligations. You've no discretion to, 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 to perform obligations as a matter of choice. And again, as with, um, as with the principal agent, that would be all right if only you could do complete contracts. But there's a whole block of economics which shows it's a complete illusion. Huh? 
There is radical um, fundamental uncertainties in the world which cannot be specified in, in, a, in a complete contract. And so the, the whole goal is an illusion. Um, economics got led down the wrong path by Milton Friedman who denied uh, the existence of uncertainty. It was called Knightian uncertainty in economics. And he, he just said, we will, in his famous book, we will assume that all, um, uh, all uncertainties can just be characterized by risks, right? probabilities. You convert uncertainties into probabilities. This is all the neurology we got, all the neuroscience, the, 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 the psychology we got says this is rubbish. But that's what's dominated the, the narrative within companies for 40 years. You don't need middle management. You don't need people with discretion. You just need junk jobs at the bottom tied to uh, fancy people at the top. And you gut the center because you don't need people to behave morally. You don't need people to have a sense of purpose because you, you can, they're, they're on pieces of string, they're puppets on a string, or they're just following tick box um, contracts, as it were. It doesn't work. So that's why we've gutted the middle. It's not technology, I think. So you say it actually flows from a mistaken idea of yeah. a confusion and two, of risk and two false narratives. People act through narrative. Narratives convert uncertainty into manageable actions. And the dominant narratives in business schools have been the narrative of the principal agent theory, which is taught all across business schools, and the, the complete contracts. Um, so those are the narratives which have guided our businesses, and they're just false. Um, you, you also had a thing about CSR. Um, uh, I'm pretty suspicious of CSR. Um, I think... Um, uh, companies have learnt that um, for good public relations, they better um, say all the right things. And so they've, they've got departments which say all the right things. Um, and what they walk away from is genuinely giving their workers a sense of purpose. And so this, the, and, and a, in a way, it compounds the problem because the workforce knows that this is bullshit. Um, and so we get this disjoint, which I'm very familiar with from Africa. In Africa, um, I have one of, the, one of the greatest African presidents told me, when, it, when, when the IMF and World Bank come to town, I used to tell my cabinet ministers, never disagree with the World Bank and the IMF. They're too important for us. Then there was a pause, and then he said, but never do what they want. Mm -hmm. right? And so in, in the countries I work in, in my day job, there's this gulf between what's really happening, trying to happen, and what people say is happening. And that's debilitating. That gap between the public narrative and private actions is very destructive because people are actually coordinate and guided by the public narrative. And if you know the public narrative is just a load of bullshit, you destroy the main mechanism for actually building these reciprocal obligations. Thank you. Here in the front. Thank you. Um, David Smith, Sunday Times. Um, I just wanted to ask about your characterization of London versus the provinces um, and whether 
a more accurate characterization of the UK might be uh, successful cities versus the rest. So if you go to Birmingham, as many people did last week, you see there is a, an office building boom there to house business, professional, financial services. Get a similar thing in uh, Manchester, uh, Cardiff, Edinburgh, obviously, and other cities, Newcastle, Leeds, not Sheffield, uh, is maybe an exception. But the problem is the, um, that those successful cities are surrounded by failed towns, mm. the old industrial mm. towns. And the question is what you do about that. We had regional policy from 1945 to the 1980s. We're getting another form of regional policy now in the form of Northern Powerhouse, Midlands Engine, and so on. Is that just, uh, is that just uh, superficial? Will that not make any difference? Do you need to go much further than that? And, it, and do you have to, your idea of taxing the rents of agglomeration, do you have to do that for the other successful cities as well? Uh, or is it just the London thing? Uh, I, I, I think, you know, there's, there's certainly something in what you say, that, it, that it's, it, it's towns um, versus successful cities. Um, uh, and broken cities versus successful cities. But um, to go back to what I mentioned at Bromwyn, I mean, the, the, London's pretty important in all this because if we just look at the raw figures of where is GDP generated, um, the ratio of GDP generated in London to GDP generated in the entire rest of the country, that ratio is going up and up and up quite fast. So... Um, you know, it, it, we can't just let London off the hook. Um, there are sort of mini-Londons. There are a few mini-Londons. Um, uh, the, can we create clusters in towns? Uh, I think we can. There probably won't be industrial clusters, but we can do a lot of, of, of service clusters, I think. Um, uh, and towns can become very nice places to live. So um, uh, the... Um, it's a, I think it's a perfectly feasible agenda to trip. Modern globalization needs to be about bringing productive jobs to where people feel they belong, rather than wrenching people from where they belong and taking them to the, uh, the agglomerations, the big metropolitan agglomerations. Um, the, 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 the public policy has got to a stage where it's clever enough to be able to do that and it's what people want because people do, really do get a sense of belonging to place where they grow up. And there's a big psychological cost if we destroy that. Um, and we don't measure that in national accounts, but that's just because we're very poor at measuring uh, what people really get from well-being. And so globalization's a good enough force. There's enough productivity growth there that we can actually direct it to, to make it do what we want, rather than just make people work for globalization, as it were. I'm myself listening to this, and I have to say, rebelling at some of it. I mean, you have, you know, many would agree with you, but my parents, one who grew up in very working-class environments, fled their communities, adoring uh, the metropolis. It uh, takes all, all, all types. We've got time for, I think, a couple more questions here. And let's try and get everyone in. Uh, hi, it's Hadra Hamani. I just want to ask sort of on taxing the metropolis on a practical level. It seems idealistic. Who exactly are you taxing? And then where does the incidence fall? You end up tax. 
I mean, a lot of taxes, you're taxing one person and it's capitalising to something else and the burden falls on someone else. How is that working? How do you see it working in terms of implementing it into policy? Yeah. So, um, first of all, it, it's, it's not um, the new labour model of let the city rip and use that to finance Benefit Street uh, in the provinces, right? Um, that was the economist utilitarian paternalist solution but then in economic models the only thing people care about is consumption and work enters as a negative you know people are, are greedy selfish and lazy um, in economic models but in reality they're not right? um, uh, people get a sense of dignity from the work they do as long as it's meaningful work and so a very important thing is to, is to give people opportunities for productive employment. Um, that's part of well-being. In fact, if you look at the psychology evidence, it's quite a large part of well-being, a sense of purpose through contribution. Um, so who's going to be taxed? Um, uh, let's, let's take two groups. So one is people who own land and property uh, in metropolitan locations um, where the values have risen enormously, not because of what they've done, but because the, the agglomeration has generated this huge increase in productivity, which means you've got to get in, if you're skilled, you've got to get into the agglomeration in order to, to, to harness returns on your skill. Right? So um, uh, we radically undertax that, um, that, that, that appreciation in the value of land and property. Radically undertax it. I mean, a lot of it is tax-free. Um, uh, and it seems to me that's just ethically preposterous. We've, we've dealing with... Do you know, if you talk to tax experts, um, uh, there is no concept of desert anywhere there. Um, when you talk ethics to the sort of technical tax people... They just think you're talking about equality. Um, uh, and Henry George was the first to see this. He produced a book um, uh, which became the best-selling book in America in the whole of the 19th century. And his point, Henry George wasn't a socialist, his point was that um, uh, the appreciation in land values is not earned by the people who own the land. And so it's crazy not to tax them. Um, uh, that um, socialist paradise Singapore, um, Lee Kuan Yew was one of my great heroes. I think he was an absolutely fantastic leader. He saw this very early on. So in 1973, he says, um, uh, why are land prices rising? Property prices, the land prices are rising because of what we're all doing, not because of the people who own the land. And so uh, you can keep owning, owning the land, but uh, the state reserves the right to buy it, and we buy it at the price prevailing in 1973, whenever we buy it. And over the subsequent years, something like two-thirds of the land in Singapore was bought by the state, resold, but basically that huge capital appreciation was captured by the state, because Lee Kuan Yew thought that's the ethical thing to do. Yeah? We don't do it. We, 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 we tax it more likely than income um, rather than more heavily than income, which is absurd. 
Um, and then the other group, which is uh, more controversial, certainly in Britain, is the highly skilled. The highly skilled in London are more productive than if you take the same skill and put it in a provincial city. Yeah? Now, in New York, you would pay, if you're highly skilled, you would pay 8% more than if you were um, uh, earning the same amount uh, in a provincial city. Yeah? Because to earn the same amount in a provincial city, you must be more skilled. Yeah? Um, in London, we don't do that, but it's perfectly possible to add a, a, a tax premium on the high earners that is paid, that is an interaction between income and location. And so that would be capturing the, 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 the rents of agglomeration that accrue at the moment to the skilled. So both the skilled and the, the landowners um, should, be, should be paying more than they do. They, they feel like they are. But so am I, and I'm not in. I'm not in London, right? There, there, there are there are the um, you, yeah. But just try and understand that the productivity in an agglomeration is high, very high, not just because of the individual skills. It's high because of the location. And the location is very productive because of the efforts of all of the nation over a long period. And so all of the nation is entitled to share in those fruits. Um, and at the moment, we don't. Right? The, 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 the metropolitan elite thinks it's, uh, it's performing a great charitable function to the rest of the nation, shackled to a corpse, but you aren't. We are really sadly going to have to stop there. And I know there's, there's a few more hands up, and I, all I would say was come and get the first glasses of wine and come and quiz uh, Paul next door. But I'm sorry we're going to have to stop. Uh, and Paul, I feel we've let you off the hook entirely about immigration, uh, having accepted your diversion. But the implication of what you're saying about wanting um, clear bonds of, of, of identity and reciprocal obligations is, is you know, is, um, uh, is finding immigration uncomfortable but no um, it doesn't it doesn't because right. the, the the belonging is to place yeah. not to ethnicity so there's no right. there's no uh, there's no sort of ethnic agenda there it's, it's it's saying that the natural attachment of people is to place and and that's what we can build a sense of shared belonging around well Look, on that, on that note, we're going to ha we, we are, as I said, um, going to have to stop. Paul, thank you very much indeed for coming. Please come next door where Paul is signing copies which you can buy and come and have an IFG glass of wine. Thank you for joining us on such a drizzly evening.